Good evening, everyone. Is it on? Right, it's a great privilege for me to be here with you once again. Um, thank you for allowing me to preach here at the church. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 from verse 9. So uh, the next few months I'm going to go through Romans. Uh, I'm going to look at Romans 3 verse 9. But before we get to the word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word, the book of Romans. It makes the gospel so clear. Father, help us to understand the depths of our depravity, so that we would appreciate the gospel in all its fullness and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Uh, Romans chapter 3, from verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift, swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right, so this evening's message is titled, All are guilty as charged, radically depraved, helpless and hopeless, therefore look to Christ. All are guilty as charged, radically depraved, helpless and hopeless, therefore look to Christ. Now a few weeks ago when I preached here, I talked, my text was Romans chapter 1. And I talked about the power of the gospel. And I mentioned that there's nothing as great, nothing as powerful as the gospel. Why? Because the gospel will transport you to everlasting life. Something permanent, something lasting with God. Salvation that is permanent. And that's why the gospel is the most powerful thing in the world. Uh, more powerful than an atomic bomb. or uh, water. Um, what do you call it? A hydrogen bomb. Um, 
But, but to understand the power of the gospel, many people don't understand the power of the gospel. They think the gospel is irrelevant uh, because they don't understand their own depravity. And that's, that's the world we live in. You cannot appreciate the gospel unless you understand the depth of your own depravity. And that is a crucial point. Many don't accept the good news because they don't understand the severity of the bad news. It's like a candle, lighting a candle in broad daylight. It is, a, it is, a, it is of no use. If you flashlight at broad daylight when the sun is shining, people think you're crazy. Why do you need a flashlight? Or it's like when you go and have a three-course meal and somebody brings your food. It's not of no use because you're already full. In the same way, the gospel, the good news, doesn't make sense unless you understand the darkness that we are in. The gospel light doesn't shine unless you know how, how dark you really are, how, how evil you really are, how depraved you really are. It doesn't make sense. So what we see in this passage is that all people are radically, totally depraved and helpless and hopeless, dead in their sins, damned and doomed and done for, and therefore they desperately need the gospel. That's what this text shows us. That we are in a desperate situation and that, that the, the gospel light only is appreciated when you appreciate your own, or when you come to grips with your own depravity. So, in this regard, God has given mankind two things to help us discover our hopeless state so that we would call on Christ for salvation. Those two things are firstly the law of God, the word of God, and secondly, the conscience. Um, the Jews, God's people, received the oracles of God, they received the law of God, they received the word of God, and that helped them to understand their own depravity. But many people in the world never had the law of God, they never had the, the word of God, but they had the conscience. Because God has given to each person a conscience. And the conscience is the, is your poli is the policeman within you. It tells you when you are right and wrong. And God has given the conscience or His laws have been written in each person's heart, even though they've never heard the word of God. So those two things God has given to mankind to help them. To help them see their own state before God. So what, what the law shows us and what the conscience is supposed to help you with is to show you that you are rotten to the core and bad to the bone. That's what it, what it should do. When you look at the law, it's like a mirror. You see, you should see your own sinful state. It cannot, cannot help you but it's supposed to help you understand who you really are before God. You see, the Bible tells us that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin. But unless it's like, unless there's a proper diagnosis, you cannot appreciate the cure. It's like somebody who has cancer, but he doesn't know he has cancer. He doesn't know he has cancer. He's just living life as as as. You know, every day as he, as he goes through life. He doesn't understand that he's actually a predicament. But if some, some doctor comes and tells him, you have stage 4 cancer, they, then he realizes, no, he's in a predicament. There's a diagnosis. 
it's been tested, there's tests been done. Now, now there's hope because now you can get treatment. Now you can go through chemotherapy or other kinds of treatments. There's actually a hope for that person. But if there's not a diagnosis, then, then the person is actually hopeless and lost. He doesn't know there's a problem with it. And that, in the same way, what the Bible does, first of all, is to make a diagnosis. It helps you to see that you are, that you are guilty as charged. That you're guilty before God, and rightly, that you're, you have real guilt before God, and that you are radically depraved, hopeless and helpless, and you cannot save yourself unless God helps you. And this is what this passage shows us. So in this message, I want to make clear what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, that we are all without exception, in a terrible state. It is worse than World War III. It is, it is worse than the, the, the war that's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Your own state before God is a more serious problem. Don't stop worrying about Russia and Ukraine. Think about your own heart. That's where the real war is waging. So this message, firstly, I want to look at... Um, are five points. All are under the power of sin as willing slaves. That's my first point. All are under the power of sin as willing slaves. Secondly, what is the extent of our depravity? Thirdly, we are guilty as charged and accountable to God for our sins. And based on our works, we are helpless and hopeless. And therefore, we need Christ. I'm going to go through verse by verse. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now I skipped from my previous message two weeks ago. I skipped chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 8. But I'm going to give you the summary of that now. So what we see in... Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the Jews, or the Gentiles. And Paul is arguing that both Gentiles, non-Jews and Jews, are both under the control of sin. Both of them. Uh, firstly, in chapter, 80, uh, ch chapter 1 verse 18 and chapter 2, God makes it clear that the Gentiles have received revelation of God. God is revealed to them in creation his divine power his divinity his eternal power so that they are without excuse even though they've never heard about jesus even though never somebody has never read the bible the gentiles know about god through what he has created and also not only general revelation but god has given them a conscience and that conscience of them excuse them or accuse them day by day and those two things, uh, God has given to all people, even though they have never heard about Jesus or the law of God or the word of God. And the Paul makes the case that they are without excuse, without excuse, because they have not lived according to the light that they have received. God has revealed himself to them and they did not thank God. They did not glorify God and the conscience did not help them because they sinned even against the light that they have received. So Paul is making the case, first of all, 
that the Gentiles are under sin. They're under sin. I hope you can hear me. <laughs> because there's a storm waging out there. <laughs> all right. Um, so first of all, the point is, nobody can worship God as they should. They are, they are under sin. They are guilty because they have not lived according to their conscience. And they have not thanked and glorified God as they should have. That's, that's the Gentiles. But the Jews are the same. Even though the Jews have received the word of God, the law of God, and yet, even though they've received that, they've not lived according to the law. They've transgressed the law. Because nobody can, can obey the law because of their sinful nature. So Paul is arguing, making the case, he's like a prosecuting attorney, and he's Argument after argument showing that Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, are all guilty before God. All of them. Okay. There's nobody who lives without sin. Okay. And he's proving that chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And he's now coming to a conclusion in chapter 3. And now he's summing up everything. And he's saying now, um, all people are under sin. And that means they are guilty before God. They have sinned against God, even though they've never heard about God. They can see God's divine nature in creation. They are guilty before God. But not only guilty, they are under the power of sin. They are under the power of sin. They sin perpetually, continually, even though they cannot help but sin. They're not only guilty, they are under living under the master of sin, the slave master. Sin is their master. They are slaves. They're like in a prison. And they can't get out. Even though this prison you have freedom. But you're actually bound because you can't get out of this prison. And that is what Paul is saying. They are all under sin. Jews and Gentiles are all under the power of sin. And we are guilty before God. Now, you might think, <clears throat> is God right to judge us if we are under the control of sin? Because of Adam. Because we get of sinful nature from Adam. Now that's a good question if you ask that. But the Bible makes clear we are free moral agents. That means we are free yet bound. We are bound to our sinful nature, but we sin as we please. Nobody forces you to sin. God doesn't force you to sin. Satan doesn't force you to sin. You sin freely. You want to sin. And what it means to live in this world is that you are bound to your sinful nature, but you, ch you choose freely to sin. You, you always do what you want to do. The problem is all that we want to do is sin. All that we want to do is sin. So we are free um, in the sense that we choose what we want to do. And therefore, you are guilty before God. Even though you're bound in your sinful nature... Because you do what you want to do, and that is sin, you are accountable before God. And that is what Paul is saying here. We are, we are willing slaves of our sin master. Uh, it's like in the, at Noah's time when, when God decided to destroy the world, the flood. And he said to Noah, the heart of man is only evil continually. That's who we are. Our hearts are only evil continually, right? We are, we are willing, uh, willing slaves uh, of sin. And therefore, we are all guilty. So that's the first point he's making. We are all 
guilty before God. Uh, so the second one point is then from verse 10 to verse 17. And Paul is now explaining the extent of our depravity. The extent. Okay. First of all, he says, all, every person on the face of the earth who has ever lived are under this power. Firstly. Secondly, what is the, what is the extent of this depravity? And he's, he's making the case that your heart, your tongue, your conduct, and your mind are all in, in, uh, affected by, by sin. So let's read from verse 10. Now he says, now he's proving the point why all are under sin. He says, and he's, he's quoting Old Testament scriptures all over. Psalm 14, other places as well. And he's building his case to prove that we are all slaves of sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You see the universal. Paul is making the case, first of all, quoting scripture, that we are all under the power of sin and that we are all guilty. So what he's saying is that we are all bad. Very bad. We are all bad. Very bad. That's what he's saying. He says, none is righteous, not even one. So that you are not righteous. I'm not righteous. Uh, Daniel was not righteous in himself. Job was not righteous in himself. We were all sinners. And in case you miss the point he's making, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. Not one person who's ever lived on the face of the earth except Jesus. Not one. But maybe you want to object. Oh, but I know somebody. I know somebody. Somebody. Daniel. Daniel. In the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that he sinned. Yes, Daniel as well. Job was the most righteous person. Yes, Job as well. He was also a sinner. There's no one righteous. Not even one. Not you. Not me. Not the pastor. No one. No one is righteous. Then he proceeds and he says, no one understands. If no one is righteous, no one understands righteousness. No one understands God. Because we have all tainted, we all sin, we fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, our minds have been uh, affected by sin. We don't think right. We don't think right about God, about us, about the world. No one understands righteousness. Only those who never sin understand righteousness. But we don't understand. And then he goes on and he says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. You might say, but, but aren't there people that seeks for God, seek for God? Aren't there people in some places that seek for God? Actually, the Bible says, no one seeks for God. You see, I, this morning I preached on the, on the rich young ruler at Birchley. And he came to Jesus and says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? It, might, it, might, it may seem that, that that man really sought for God, isn't it? But R.C. Sproul says, in his commentary on Romans, he says, no, what people are actually seeking are the gifts of God. They're seeking for eternal life, peace, uh, rid of a, to be rid of a guilty conscience, joy. They don't seek God. They seek the benefits of God. That's what people are seeking. Yes, people are seeking to live forever because God has made us 
to live forever. Innate, in ourselves, we want to live forever. We were made that way. But we don't seek for God. The Bible says, Isaiah 53 verse 6, We have all turned aside. Like sheep, we have all turned our own way. So the Bible makes it clear that no one seeks for God. But the, well, the Christians seek for God. But it's because God has first given them a new nature. Yes, Christians seek for God. We see God's presence. If you're a Christian, then you seek for God. But man in his natural state do not seek for God. God is the one seeking for us. Nobody has ever sought for God. But when God comes to us, He's a shepherd. We are the lost ones. He's seeking for us. That's what the Bible says here. No one seeks for God. Then the text says, They have all become worthless. Worthless. We are like fountains that are polluted. We are like diseased trees. And if the, the tree is diseased, sick, the fruit are also diseased, sick. In other words, we have become rotten. We should be thrown away. We have become worthless as human beings. God should just get rid of us. We are rotten to the core like diseased fruit trees. And then Paul says in verse 14, like Psalm 14 also says, no one does good, not even one. You may object and say, wait a minute. There are people that do good. Those Hindus that feed the poor. Those Muslims that help people. They do good. They do good to us. How can you say no one does good? <clears throat> Again, Arthur Sproul says in his commentary, for an act to be, to be good, two things are necessary. Firstly, it needs to correspond to the word of God, like feeding the, feeding the hungry. Clothing the naked, that's first of all, it needs to correspond to the word of God. We are more given over to people than others. We are not actually the Christ. What it means is this that sin has influenced every faculty of our being. It's like, let's say you have a glass of water here, you put some coke in there. What is going to happen to the clock? Everything is going to get black, right? That, that code is going to affect everything inside. And this is what sin does. It affects every area of our life. How we speak, how we think, our hearts, our emotions, our actions. Every area of your life has been affected with sin. This is what it means. And Paul is making his case and he says the following. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. <clears throat> so what we have to understand is, if you are not righteous, if you are not good, if you are fallen, if you are depraved, your mouth, what you say is going to reflect that. This is what Paul is saying. It first starts with the heart. We are not righteous. There's something wrong in our being. We are, utter, we are not utterly depraved. We are radically depraved. And therefore, every facet of our being has been in, in, uh, affected. Our minds, we don't think right. We, we, we always think how to please other people, not God. We think wrong. We think like the world. We always think to please ourselves. 
Our being is wrong, and then that reflects in our, the way we speak. If you want to know what was going on in somebody's life, just listen to how they talk. Just listen to how they talk. And Paul is, Paul is making the, the statement here, their throat is an open grave. That means if the heart is dead, what comes out of the mouth is death. Is death, is slander, is gossip, is hatred, is unforgiveness. Everything that is bad comes out. And he says, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. What, is, what does that mean? Through their mouths they kill. They kill. They kill people's reputations. They speak bad about other people. The venom of asps, the picture is there is of a snake, of kills people. That's what, that's what people do with their tongues. The way they speak, slander, gossip, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Cursing, bitterness, unforgiveness. Why is that? Because the heart is bad. If the heart is bad, everything that comes out of the mouth is also bad. And then also, the conduct is bad. The behavior is bad. The feet are swift to shed blood. They commit murder. They approve of murder. Like in our day, abortion. The pharmaceutical companies create tablets to kill babies. The nurses and the whole medical you know, institutions are for it in South Africa and in many other nations. They all approve of what's going on. The feet are swift to shed blood and approve those who murder. So then the actions are also <coughs> affected, what, the way we live. The, the paths are ruin and misery. That, in other words, murder, rape, Theft, corruption, slander, depression, hate, disobedience to parents, lies, covetousness, all follow because of idolatry. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, ruin and misery is the result of, and this is, this is just, just read the newspapers every day, you'll see what's going on. Murder, rape, alcohol abuse, families that are splitting up, all the result of sin. Just think about King David. What what sin? One sin or two sins? Murder and uh, adultery. What 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 was the effect of that in one family? What was the effect? You know the story. What was the effect of that those, those sins of David on a family? And then you can multiply it all over the world. You will see. We see the effect of sin. Verse seventeen. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So because of this radical depravity that people are um, like, they do not know peace. They do not know salvation. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't have a reference point of God. They deny the existence of God. They do not acknowledge God. They wake up in the morning, don't even read the Bible, don't say a prayers. There's a sad state of affairs. And like Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart there's no God. There's no fear of God in their lives. And this is the man or the woman or the child that does not know God. This is his state. So, so we are radically depraved. Not as bad as we could be, but every area of our lives have been tainted with our sinful nature and with sin. <clears throat> now verse 19, Paul says... <clears throat> And he now makes a conclusion. He comes to a conclusion and he says, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What does that mean? It's not only the Jews. We are all under the law. Because God gave the law in our hearts. Even if we haven't, the Gentiles. God has given the conscience in their hearts. It accuses them, excusing them. They are also under the law. Everyone is under the law. That means we are all accountable to God. That's what he says. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So what is this Paul saying? We have all sinned. We have all willingly, freely sinned against God. All of us. All of us. And therefore, we cannot come to the judgment seat of Christ and say, God, I'm innocent. I'm not, I've not sinned. They forced me to sin. Nobody can say that. You cannot say that. You know in your heart, you have deliberately sinned against God. You have. And because of that, you have nothing to say in God's presence. All you can do is hold your mouth and say, guilty as charged. You are guilty before God. I am guilty. Every person on the face of the planet is guilty as charged. That's what Paul is saying here. We are all under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. God wants you to admit that you're a sinner. You are a sinner. You are rotten to the core. You are bad to the bone. You are dead, damned, and doomed, and done for as a human being in your natural state. You have no hope, and you are helpless before God. That is what the law shows you. You are a sinner like the rest of us. And therefore, we are all, because we are not forced to sin, we are guilty before God. Our guilt is real. It's real. You cannot say, God made me to sin. You made me like this. No, you have willingly, freely sinned against God. And therefore, we are all accountable to God. <clears throat> we are all, in other words, <clears throat> guilty as charged. And if you have come to this point, praise God. Because I can tell you, many people do not believe they are guilty. But God has given us the law and the Bible to help you understand you are a sinner. The diagnosis has been made. If you realize you're radically depraved, that you cannot save yourself, and that you're guilty before God because of your sin, you are this hopeful. So this is the conclusion. God, Paul is quoting all these texts so that your mouth may be stopped. So that you be silent and just say, God, help me. Help me. This is, this is the point that Paul is, we are all liable to judgment. If you were Adam or Eve, you would have sinned as well. That's the point. If you were Adam in that garden, you would have sinned as well. We've all sinned. And more than that, we have not only sinned once or twice. We have sinned over and over. It's like a snowball. It just keeps on rolling, right? It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Our, our guilt just accumulates. Oh, it becomes bigger and bigger. And uh, we are all guilty before God. Now, verse 20. Paul says, but now, 
The picture has not stopped. We are radically depraved. We are guilty before God. But not only that, that, that is good. Because many people believe that, but now they have a problem. They, they try to fix themselves. They try to fix themselves. So they try to do good things. But Paul is saying here, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul is saying here, you are guilty, you are under the power of sin, you are radically depraved, but you can't save yourself either. You can't save yourself. You cannot say, okay, from now on, I know I'm guilty, now I'm going I'm I'm to give myself to a, a mission organization. I'm going to preach the gospel. Okay. Now from now on, I'm going I'm to be good. And then God, may, maybe God will forgive me now. But Paul is saying, yeah, no, no, that's not how it works. Uh, you are not, by works of the law, by your own good deeds, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Why? Because you have too much guilt anyway. And for that guilt, you need to be accountable for. You need to die because of your guilt. Because of your sin, you need to die. The soul that sins must die. You must die. You've already been found guilty. You cannot say it's like a, like a mass murderer. And he's been convicted and he's guilty. And the evidence is there laid before the judge. And he knows he's guilty. And he says to the judge, listen, for 20 years, I will give my life for community service. I will do this. Please let me go. No, it will not, will not work. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what he says. <clears throat> you will have to go to jail because he has committed crimes. And the same applies to us. It doesn't matter what you say. You can say... I'm going to wake up 4 o'clock every morning. I'm going to do three hours devotions. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go on my knees. I'm going to read the Bible through four times a year. I'm going to give out tracts every day. I'm going to go door, house to house evangelism. I'm going to homeschool my children. All of them. I'm going to teach them the Bible every day. You think that is enough? No, it's not enough. You can never undo the bad things. And even those good things that you do are tainted with sin. That's what Paul is saying here. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means you are hopeless and helpless to save yourself. Hopeless and helpless. You are guilty as charged, radically depraved, hopeless and helpless to save yourself. Because what God requires is righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And you cannot offer that to God. You cannot. So we can't achieve salvation by anything we do. The law is powerful, powerless to save us. <clears throat> so our only hope that comes to... Please go and read Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31. One of the greatest passages in Scripture. It gives you a solution. And the solution is Jesus. Jesus. The only place where you will find help justification, a new nature, help and hope is in Jesus Christ. That is your only hope in this world. You are bound in a prison and Jesus Christ has the key to unlock that prison. He has the key of death and Hades. He's the only way for you to get out of that prison where you are bound to your sinful nature and your sin is just accumulating every day. The only way to get out of that prison is Jesus Christ. 
And that is what Romans chapter 321 is all about. But next time I will preach about that. But I just want to leave this with you. Jesus Christ came into this world to give his life as a ransom for us. He obtained a perfect righteousness. Perfect. Lived a perfect life. For in our place. So when you believe in him, he gives you his righteousness. He gives it to you. He credits it to your account. And all your sins are credited to Jesus. He died on the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the only way where you can receive righteousness and all your sins can be absolved, taken away. Jesus paid the penalty 2,000 years ago on the cross. His blood was shed. He made atonement for sin. And that's the only way where you can get out of this prison where your guilt can be removed, where you can get a new nature that wants to do righteousness, where you want to see God day by day. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus rose from the dead, and conquered the grave, and through them there's eternal life. There's hope. There's help. There is justification. And there's a new nature offered in the gospel. And your only hope in this life and the life to come is Jesus Christ. And He's coming again, as the Bible says, and every eye will see Him. And those who believe in Him will forever be with Him. And we have to understand this. You would not appreciate the gospel. You will not accept the gospel unless you know that you have no hope and no help in and of yourself. You can't. Doesn't matter how far you go down, you will never find hope in yourself. You must look to Jesus Christ. You must look to Jesus Christ. The more you look to Jesus Christ, the more hope you will get, the more help you will get, your sins will be forgiven, you will be a new person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. We are bound in the sinful nature. Yes, we love our sinful nature. But Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to be our propitiation, to take away your wrath, take away our sin, so that we can stand blameless in your sight, clothed in Christ's righteousness, and all our sins forgiven. By faith alone. Father, help us to believe in Jesus. Because He's our only hope, our only help, our only strength, our only hope to get out of this world alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.